Hey, it's Eric Newcomer. Welcome to Dead Cat. Tom Dotan is here. We've got Logan Bartlett, VC, but more importantly, a rival podcaster. What, you're cartoon avatar. I also profiled him a while ago. Podcasting isn't a zero-sum game. <laughs> it's a rising tide lifts all ships here, Eric. That's true, like, but I think it's more strategic and... to have enemies than friends, right? I mean, I feel like few. But you don't want that... cartoon avatars as your enemy. It's very clear what our enemy can be. You're going <laughs> after the wrong the wrong VC podcast. <laughs> yeah, that's, right. We're, that's we're, right. we're competitors in both that we would like to be a foil to all in. Uh, no. <laughs> yeah, exactly. The modestly successful, like, you know, up-and-coming VC trying to get by versus the self-proclaimed billionaires that are all navel-gazing. Yeah, which right. which one makes a better foil? I don't know. We can say at this podcast currently, there are zero people that appeared in Elon Musk text messages, so far as I can tell. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, exactly. How long have you been at Cartoon Avatars, by the way? Beginning of February. So originally, actually, I give those guys a lot of credit in the impetus for doing it. And so it was last fall, probably a year ago, that the market was super crazy and I was seeing the success that they were having. And obviously, they do a good job with one type of content, right? And one, I mean, they all had different voices, but- uh, Oh, you're saying all in. All in, yeah. And so I thought originally that I could be a foil to that in some ways. And so it was actually like originally trying to recreate elements of what they did, but maybe a little bit more relatable to the non-billionaire class. But the format has evolved. Originally, I had two other people doing it with me. Well, you had Nikita, who now has like viral app success, right? What's it called? It's crazy. Like, yeah. What's the, what's Gas. The app Gas. Is it doing well? It was number one on the app store. Yeah. Yeah. It's like a dating type thing or... To be honest, I do not know. Oh, what there's it there's is. bad blood. Ex, no, ex no, podcast no. host, you're you're done. No, you're I'm done. trying to get him to come back on. We're still buddies. <laughs> uh, but what actually happened was he was starting this company and he got distracted with you know actually doing his day job. So it kind of evolved to just me and then just me plus Zach Weinberg. And so we've been in our current iteration ish probably since April, I would say. So I don't know how you score it. Yeah. All right. Well, we're here today. It is a fun episode. So I want to just sort of shoot the shit, but. Insider wrote, what would you call it? Like an explosive story headline. I made $200,000 last year ghostwriting tweets for superstar VCs. It takes me five hours a week. Here's how I found my clients and built a booming side hustle from scratch. And it's basically sort of as told to story of someone. They claim they got like $100,000 for tweet storming, like a big funding round. I mean, just a ton of money. And it's definitely traveling the VC world because, you know, it fits into this whole sort of, I don't know, VCs as content marketers, as sort of celebrities thing. VCs as influencers, right? right? I mean, it was like right. a big story three or four years ago. Logan, you're an influencer, right? That's right. Yeah, yeah Logan I'm understands just, this. I'm just trying to subtly shape people into my worldviews, one Twitter post at a time. Yeah, you know, it was interesting. People have been poking around at this story for a little while. I had a Washington Post reporter reach out to me like three months ago. And they were like, I heard you're someone I should talk to about this. And <laughs> about specifically the paid for tweets issue. I couldn't tell like what their angle was if they were trying to get me to say that I pay for tweets or something. Yeah. And so I got on the phone with her and I was like, listen, if someone's saying <laughs> that, let's be very clear. No, I am not doing that. I 100%, if you're going to run that, I am going to like get on a bully pulpit and call right. you a liar. You're going right. to see me go fake news on this. Was that the claim that they came no, to you saying? No, 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 no. They're just but like, I oh, got... you're one of those annoying VCs right. on Twitter and you might be That's a good right. person to enter that world. It was more I like see. you would have an opinion about this, I think oh, okay. was her angle. But I was immediately like, if someone is sullying my name, like, the originalities of my tweets, I will come for them, right? right? So I immediately got defensive because I knew that this article, one, listen, it's logical that people are doing this, right? In a very high level, hey, is there a opportunity, an arbitrage that exists from very well-paid people that maybe don't have a lot of time or don't have a lot of creativity to come up with stuff like this? And then very creative people that have lots of time and don't have a lot of money, like, is there an arbitrage opportunity that exists there? Yes. My criticism with this article is not that it's not happening, because I have to think it is, right? You know, I don't want to undermine Business Insider's reporting. It seems like they have timestamps and, you know, wire receipts and all that. Hmm. But there were enough little details in this story that just like 
didn't ring true to me that I'm not, and we can go through and talk about some of oh, the specific excellent. ones. I like this. Yeah. Let's deconstruct it. But, By the way, I had nothing to do with this story, so I feel confident in being able to read this article. I'll leave commentary that's critical to you guys. <laughs> well, to be fair, like in Insider's defense, right? It's an as told to, right? The per, I mean, yeah, it's as yeah. told to. So like, yeah. the, you know, Insider validated the person's identity, right? They validated some form of wire receipts. And so I think there's enough of a story there that that alone is interesting, right? This whole thing is interesting just from like a palace intrigue and, you know, whatever. We can talk about all the different things. So before we get into the did it happen exactly like this article lays out? I just want to touch on why there would be demand for this in the first place. Like, Logan, I've written a story about you, which I called a Twitter troll's take on the future of investing. So you're someone who's very clearly in a sort of in VC speak even laid out to your LPs why like tweeting and podcasting is important to VCs right now. But yeah, explain that to our audience. Why would there even be a market for like, who cares what a VC tweets? So I think and we talked a little bit about this in that article that you did. But once upon a time, let's say early 2000s, VC was very much a cottage industry where VCs controlled capital and founders came to them looking for access to that capital, right? And diligence processes lasted a long time and entrepreneurs had to jump through hoops. And ultimately, it was only a handful of mostly white men that sort of controlled the purse strings of who got funded and who didn't, right? And then over the course of the last 20 years, I sort of call that like the broadcast television days. Is right. Those were the days in which, you know, your only job as a VC was to be broadly appealing so as not to be canceled and to not be eliminated from this little boys club cottage industry, right? And really, you needed to suck up to the other VCs more than anything because you were Correct. getting deal flow from them. It was sort of protected. You just wanted a generic, good brand, you know. I mean, there was still sort of a you want to be, you know, you want to have a little bit of spiciness because it's not banking. You know, it's venture. But yeah. Yeah, but even still, like, sure, you hear stories of Sequoia and Kleiner duking it out for like Google and stuff. But like, for the most part, it was much more collegial in how it operated. And then... I sort of market 2008-ish post-financial crisis happens to coincide with Andreessen Horowitz coming up. Fred Wilson was blogging in a meaningful way, right? Like all these Twitter was kind of proliferating as a medium. This is the cable television. Yeah, cable. Where, we went where from there broadcast was, to cable, right? Where there's some level of personalization that exists, right? And so like you have funds that start focusing on, oh, we're a growth only fund, right? Like once upon a time, that was not a thing, but now we're going to only do growth or we're only going to do fintech or we're only going to do healthcare, right? Right. And VC started to, I think the Andreessen Horowitz folks did a good job of like pulling back the veil a little bit in terms of how the industry operated. And, you know, Ben Horowitz was leading with rap posts at the beginning of his article, right? And there was just a little bit more personality that existed there. We've had Parker Conrad on the show before, and he obviously has specific feelings about Andreessen Horowitz. But his line that stuck with me is that they're basically a media company with an investment arm attached to it. Yeah, Parker's the fucking best. I had him on and he went That's in. Right. You had a great. You, you, yeah, he went into depth about Andreessen Horowitz, uh, which was, was an we interesting did that episode first. He was our first guest, but great job interviewing him. And for some reason, he decided to go like full hit him up on David Sachs and Ben Horowitz. <laughs> well, we sort of warmed him up. He was a little paranoid on ours. And then he was like, OK, nothing bad happened to me when I did that. So then, you know, you got him even. That's more. right. You primed the pump for yeah, it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You were my opening Okay, then the next era post 2020 is the streaming era. Then the next era now, as capital got abundant, right, like you sort of got your infinite choice of what type of capital you wanted. And if you wanted a fintech only early stage fund that was backed by whatever former it has a banana as its avatar. Or whatever. Yeah, yeah. You got all your choices, right? It's and fun. so we entered the cartoon network era of VCs. The cartoon network area. I, I say it's sort of TikTok personalization where everything you like have your option of like any personalized feed of capital provider. And I think that has been true. Well now with the pullback maybe less so, right. And we'll uh, debate that after. That's sort of the next logic. So but going into the bubble and I think this like insider story about paying for tweets is sort of, uh, you know, it's reflecting a period that might be ending or might continue. But sort of at least until the end of like last year and the first quarter of this year, this was the streaming wars idea was like very much the mood. 
Yeah, where everyone was just trying to cut through the noise, right? And I said this, Eric, when I was talking to you about this and the thing we did is like, it's better to be Donald Trump than it is to be Jeb Bush and Venture. And it's kind of like this, you know, even comparing anything to Donald Trump is polarizing, but we don't live in a ranked choice world of venture capital. It's like, to be second is to be a loser, right? And the same thing is in the primary process where if you're going through primaries, right, you want to appeal deeply to as big of a subset of the population as you can, but it's much better to appeal very deeply to a smaller group than it is to be milk toast or like broadly kind of right. nice and likable to a broader group, right? Are you willing to be mean enough? Do you have the hatred in your heart and not like, no, I'm being sincere though. I mean, I feel like there is almost an incentive to be like Keith and really like fighting with people on Twitter, but do you always adhere to your own principle on this? Or like, are you intentionally alienating subsets of people? No, to I don't push to the outer end of polarization, right, right? For sure. Like that's just not my personality, but I have pushed the outer end of certain types of content, for example. Like, I think I was fucking around on Twitter and playing more of a Stephen Colbert-ish parody personality. Well, that's how we first interacted. You tweeted yeah. a, a joke, like a fake email or something. I was sort of new to your account, and I was like the scold who was like, you know, half the people consuming this don't realize it's fake. And like that was back in the days where I was like, oh, chase down dumb shit on Twitter or whatever. I think you might. I forget if you deleted that or not. You were sort of. No, I didn't delete it. You didn't? No, okay. like, come on. Because I got scolded but, by Eric no, Newcomer. Because, come no, on. I'm that not, was like. But there are some. I mean, you want the pair to be to be obvious to a certain percentage of people, right? Or I don't know. We could yeah. discuss all day, like how many people need to know it's a joke for it to make sense. Yeah. And like who you're appealing to and not. But to some extent, there's this element of people feeling like they're on the end on the joke. And then when it goes outside the bubble of the people that are in on the joke, it actually makes the joke better to those people that right. are on well, the inside. Well, that's right wing troll type. But it's very mean spirited, that idea that you're yeah, like happy yeah. about it. Let's zoom in towards the article. I mean, we can debate the higher level stuff afterwards yeah, yeah, because, sure. you know, like you're saying, I think the article captures a specific point in time, maybe one that is ending. But it's absolutely something that I imagine VCs recognize at a certain point, which is like, oh, shit, I'm getting attention for this. I've developed a personality and this may actually have downstream effects, beneficial downstream effects towards deal flow. And, you know, it seems like it's just feeding my ego, like from the outside, if you wouldn't think about how it could potentially help you in your, you know, actual day job, you would think, oh, this is just narcissism and that, you know, the base horrible instinct that fuels all of the bullshit on Twitter. But it sounds like you're saying that there's, you know, real financial upside to it that we should. You get everyone to remember you exist. I mean, as a newsletter writer, it's like, I feel like everybody returns my texts and emails whenever I publish. And like, similarly, I think when you're tweeting a lot, people are thinking about you more and you can feel the inbound come at you. And so I can imagine from the VC yeah. perspective, it's a lot like the media. I should go look at like the actual report because I referenced it too many times. So I should get my facts right on this. But there was some study done, right, about like people that were shown a list of names of people like six weeks before an election. And then when the election came to be, they didn't know any of the candidates. But just based on the familiarity of having seen those names right. before, they're like proclivity to pick those candidates. And so it's hard to know, right? What you don't see is the negative of it, particularly as you pick a more polarizing view of stuff, right? And you're like joking around and I've gotten yelled at online before. You don't see how many people are kind of like, fuck this guy. Right. But the advantage of just name recognition and people knowing you exist in the world, I've seen it be super advantageous for me and just cutting through the noise at an incremental level. I mean, who am I, right? I'm 34 years old, a finance background, liberal arts school major, have never been an operator, like have had a decent investing career experience. But like, you know, why would anyone want to work with me versus, I don't know, X other person that has had infinite right. more success and infinite more like operating experience or whatever, right? And if people feel like they know me a little bit more and they feel like there's a little bit more personality there, I've seen it be effective, right? And so I don't know how much to actually attribute it to this. It's one of these like brand marketing, how do you even come up with ROI or anything? But I can tell you anecdotally, it's been impactful. I mean, it's funny, Logan, that like why VCs and journalists are at each other's throat a lot on Twitter when there's actually very similar impulses and downstream effects to being obnoxious on Twitter. 
that maybe that's the reason why they don't get along, because in the same way that capital is a commodity, facts are ultimately a commodity, right? We're just trying to gather facts from people inside companies. And when it comes down to it through the internet, it's all compressed through the same pipes. And so a big story that comes out through Insider versus the information versus even the Washington Post. I think the New York Times is maybe the one that's slightly different. But by and large, you know, when you push these things through the same place, it's all the same. And so you kind of got to figure, how can I get these people that have the information to want to talk to me? And the outlet or this tactic that certain journalists take, which is to be a personality on Twitter, which I, by the way, don't necessarily agree with, but this is not an episode about journalists. That was a long subtweet of Ryan Mack, by the way. But um, well, and, <laughs> yeah, uh, and, and you, Eric. But, but anyway. I don't tweet that much. I mean, I should. Some, I, I should pay somebody. My question is, I mean, do you Oh, know I'd like to offer my services to journalists, by the way. I can be your ghostwriter Tom for your tweets. Tom thinks he should journalists. be good at tweeting, but he doesn't have the followers to back it up. Or you don't No, no, no. Yeah, but that's that, why that's right. I need to go through other outlets. So journalists, <laughs> come to me. I will ghostwrite your tweets. I will complain about the New York Times stealing your stories. I can write those tweets. I can write tweets uh, about, oh, as we previously reported, and then linking to a story that you didn't write. I can do those. Yeah, anyway. I'm sure there's a Chinese menu of snarky journalist tweets, Tom. Right. You can just go to the soundboard and play the hits of all Easy. those things. Easy. What's the, like, pricing on the, like the, I feel like the thing that's hardest to believe on the insider story is just, like, how much, you know, 200000 last year ghostwriting. I mean, I all the okay, time— Can we just get to the story, then? You want to just read the, the We story? are talking about the story. What, you want to read the okay. story? I was going to read some paragraphs right, from read it. Some but, of it. Um, read some of it. Okay. So this is just the top here. Ghostwriting tweets for venture capitalists is my side hustle. It's like the opening for Goodfellas. I like that. Last year, I made 200,000. So there's your number, Eric. Some VCs will pay you per tweet. I've done 100,000 threads to announce a big funding round. I've also done $100 tweets. Other VCs pay you per month. For 5,000 to 10,000, I'll write 10 original tweets a month. And the rate goes up quickly from there. So, like, this is right now the financials here. Do you buy these numbers, Logan? Do they sound right to you from what you've seen in the community? So, were you saying they get $100,000 for a funding round announcement? That's, That's what, what it sounds like. A thread, yeah. <sighs> I don't know. I Like, hard for me to say. It's one of these things, like, with brand marketing in general, how do you attribute what anything is worth? And so... Is it possible that people would be willing to pay for something like this? Yeah, totally. I guess it's totally possible. Where it sort of broke down for me is the way this person talks about it, it makes it seem like it's this very liquid market of like, you know, that there's some Upwork-like site in which people are bidding jobs and, you know, okay, I'll do this versus that. And like, this is my card rate for, right. for that kind of thing versus not. And I would think, one, 25 to 50 clients across all of these different jobs, like, I would think I would have some idea that this is like going on or who this person, you know, that like people are doing this in mass. It wouldn't surprise me, hey, if an associate at a venture firm were like writing some tweets for like that's definitely happening. It wouldn't surprise me if there was like some comedian or some journalist who was like built a relationship. Hey, Eric and I have a relationship. And so Eric's writing an occasional like thought piece for me on Twitter, right? But like this liquid market of all these different jobs that are going on to the point that like right. the person's able to consistently bill five hours a week and $200,000 a year. That's sort of where my bullshit meter on this was like, that just doesn't feel right to me, right? Or I'm totally obviated from this going on, which it would seem like something that I would be aware of, right? It would seem if there's any person that I think I, I would be on a short list of people that should know this is going right. on. And I didn't know this was going on. I mean, so. where is like podcasting? You must get in your DMs all the time. Like people are like, I can build your podcast, like the distribution or there are all these hustlers around content products that promise they can do great stuff for you. But yeah, this is one you don't hear chatter about. You do hear like meme accounts often, I think, talk about how people will DM them like draft tweet ideas for them to send out, right? I mean, there's a level like, do you get people who just like pitch you like Logan style tweets? Not random people, but buddies. Buddies do all the time. I probably have three friends, one in particular, who will be like, send me an idea and be like, right. hey, this is funny. I can't say this, but right. is there something we can do about XYZ <laughs> And thing, would you right? pay me 100000 for it? Or <laughs> yeah, yeah. He sent it to me and he's like, what's all this in-kind friendship bullshit that I've been getting from you <laughs> of like us brainstorming ideas? You know, why aren't I getting hundreds of thousands of dollars from you out of it? So I do feel bad. Sometimes, you know, my friends will say something clever in a text thread and it's like, oh yeah, that's a good idea. Like, uh, then you tweet it out. You're like, oh, what a genius you are. I don't know. 
I'm probably sort of higher on the level of like want my authentic ideas on my Twitter than some. I don't know to the extent we want to keep going through like the things that uh, th- this this article said, but I do think it's an interesting thing of like the desire for authenticity that exists here. It would feel for some reason like a bait and switch, right? If the Twitter persona of the VC you were following wasn't actually written by the person right. there, right? That would, but like, we don't hold Trevor Noah to the same, you know, like if, or, or like. Well, we sort of do. Like people delude themselves on. They think of actors as having said the line, you know, like as actors, it being their quote, even though like somebody else wrote it. Yeah, sure. Or like a speechwriter. No one's like, oh, like Obama wrote this great speech. Everyone like is comfortable with the fact that John Favreau probably wrote like all of the words and Obama just read it. But for some reason, this would feel very inauthentic. And I'm not totally sure what that is and why I would feel that way about it. Like why some things we accept, like, okay, there's going to be a full team working and writing and all that versus other things were kind of like, and maybe it's because it's an ancillary part of the job rather than a core part of the job. And so it kind of just feels feels dirtier that way. If you're just like grifting on your side part of your job, I don't know, that feels like a little weirder, but. Well, I think it also depends on how much of a specifically identifiable character you have built as your Twitter presence that people would pay attention whether it feels authentic or not, right? Because Trump, we know while he was on Twitter and I don't have any idea with Truth Social, it was always like, oh, he didn't write this one. Various people like in his orbit that would write things for him. Whereas, you know, at this point it's like, oh, that doesn't feel like a Keith for boy. I don't know. It didn't have like the, you know, the particular bitchiness that he's so good at. But that's like where Trump would have the ones that were obviously like his. Right. And then the ones that were like, didn't look anything like his. But there, I mean, that almost speaks to, you know, his style really came through. But his fans don't hate it is the thing, right? I mean, like, it's different because people, you know, are clearly fixated on him. But when there were a couple of tweets that were like clearly not written by him, people would be like, no, well, that's just Trump being Trump. You know, like if there were a couple of, I don't know who the good example in the VC world would be. Who are the top 10 right off the dome big hitters of VC Twitter in your mind? Logan, let's go right now. Well, I think Andreessen, right? Though now he just changes his status now. But whenever he comes back, you know. uh, I don't know. I mean, there was like a four-week period where it felt like every week there was some new topic about it was all related to his tweeting. So I would be hard-pressed to not put him high on the list. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Keith, obviously we've referenced. Keith yeah, is, uh, is one of the main ones out there. His brand is just saying no. <laughs> yeah, no, more like, narrative violation. Wrong. He gets into fights with random people. <laughs> Probably most of them are bots. Saying, I know more about this topic than you'll know about anything your whole life or whatever. Yeah. Yeah, I love it. I love it. Yeah, he's excellent. <laughs> Honestly, I've talked to him about that. We did an interview on the podcast with him. And one of the things he said was, like a lot of the stuff he learned, it was like PR stuff he employed at Square of like, hey, and this is just a statement about these social apps as well as humanity, probably. He's like engaging in good faith discussion is just such a losing battle. But Ugh. saying wrong, saying wrong or like right. you're a moron right. is like, how does someone come back from that? Right. <laughs> and so he's like, <laughs> I just kind of learned that's the better way of approaching these, which is just like a such a statement uh, of America and real Twitter politics. and you know, society. Yeah, I know. I'm yeah. It's very Machiavellian, so but it's, it's a genius move against reporters because we all kind of know we're morons. And so when you call them out as that, because we often haven't spent the time to fully understand what we're writing, uh, that when someone's like, no, you're just wrong, you're like, oh, shit, I probably am. So it's a smart move on his part. And then you want to come back, though, because your job is rooted in fact, right? And like actually having substance to back things up. And then you're coming back with like, no, Keith, here's the three reasons you're wrong. And at that point, you've already, you know, and then he like does a poop emoji and, you know, whatever. Now you're done. Right. We've moved on. Yeah, it doesn't matter. Okay, so we got Keith. We got uh, Andreessen. Gosh, who else does a really good job? I mean, I feel like, you know, it's a different style. Josh Wolf, I think, is always actually posting yep. interesting kind of substantive Lux. stuff yeah. out there. And I have a lot of respect for Josh. I mean, I love my occasional podcast co-host is Zach Weinberg, who has battled Keith quite a bit, but he's always an entertaining personality tweeting. I mean, David Sachs is bigger. Oh, Sachs, duh. Though it's mostly like, let's let he's Russia invade politics, the whole though. world sort of whole thing. Yeah. Yeah. And Calicanus probably, you know, I don't know if you call him a VC or whatever you call him, but Calicanus <laughs> is like, always, you we know. We like him. Uh, yeah, so sure, you give me a VC. Oh, it's a compliment. I mean, Paul Graham's blocked me for a long time, but when he tweets, it's still, is yeah. he tweeting as Paul much? Paul Graham, yeah. And Bologies resonate. Know. I mean, 
Naval has sort of fallen off, right? Or like, I don't see, is he yeah. still tweeting? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, he's like tweeting like cones of no. wisdom, like he's like the Buddha or something. I haven't seen him tweet as much. I used to always try to reply to Naval when he would say something. And he came up to me at a party one time and we had never met before. And I would just like reply with, you know, he would say, the most important thing in life is the decision of where you live. And I said, like, Naval's wife reading this, like, oh. you know, shaking my head <laughs> right, or something. Right. And he came up to me one time at a party and he has so many followers and gets so many replies, right? right? And so I just thought I was like some random asshole right. just like making myself right. laugh. And he came up to me and he was like, you motherfucker. He's like, I've wanted to block you so many times. Oh like, I, I've had the thought of blocking you so many times. And then every third time you'll really make me laugh. And so I like convinced myself that I should. And I was like, oh, thanks, Naval. I appreciate that. So no, but he was prolific. I think the thing is it ebbs and flows, right? Like Twitter right. in general as a medium just kind of ebbs and flows. And that's one of the things I found is like in tweeting, I've sort of- Yeah, you're not as hot as you were. Yeah, I've now sort of focused on the podcasting thing because you sort of figure out a form factor that works and then your followers come because of that form factor or style, right? And there's really only two ways to grow in a meaningful way on Twitter. It's like jokes and shit posts or like threads. Those are sort right. of the only two. Or growth. scoops, but those are a way harder scoops. way to yeah, do it. Yeah, but exactly. It is, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> a lot scoops. of work. It does. I mean, that's all I have. I mean, I have more newsletter subscribers and Twitter followers, which speaks to which medium, yeah, more successful on. Yeah. But the thing is, once you get to a certain level, it's kind of like you start to box yourself in to that's what people want from you. Right. right? And I always think of the wedding crasher scene where it's like make me a bicycle clown. And it's like whenever I would deviate from something, they'd be like, you know, give me the bicycle. Like stop doing the stop doing the insights thing. Like funny man. That's not why I came here. Right. Right. So I do think Twitter, like people ebb and flow with their like interesting. Delian at Founders Fund, he used to fight so much. I feel like his Twitter is mellowed out. I think people just get busy and distracted with other stuff. Like Delian's running a company and, you know, whatever. But I mean, Sam Lesson does his screenshots. Sorry, I'm still going through my list of who's the real. A lot of men, obviously. But on the article thing, though, it's an interesting confirmation bias of I think people just want to believe this to be true. And again, the story itself is interesting enough. One of the quotes in there was most VCs who are playing the content game employ a bunch of writers. I know people who make almost seven figures doing this. And again, I think I would know if that were the case. Like, I think if there were people making seven figures writing and not to say it's not happening, I don't want to, again, this is an insider saying this, this is whoever the person is that's saying it. I just find it really hard to believe, but I don't know. I mean, there's a lot of capital in the ecosystem, right? Well, I love the idea of the grift that a writer would have here and claim, you know, we, we got a whole writer's room of people, Keith, we're going to pump up some tweets for you. And then they come back to them like a day later with just say narrative violation. <laughs> Just throw that bomb into the mix and see what happens. But the sad thing, obviously, is it's not even like the big accounts. It's probably like the more boring accounts well, that want like... That's the thing. If you're willing to right. pay someone because you think, oh, you pay people for the best information, then you're the type of person who has terrible taste and, you know, is going to like be happy with like really bland tweets. Well, that's how it gets, I think, to the point where we're saying about authenticity here, because I think the people that are pure posters that, you know, the ones that, you know, Logan was mentioning here are the ones who it is their core being. It is the way they view the world, that their brain functions in, you know, tweets that get engagement. And that's why I'm assuming that this person that was interviewed here for the article is probably doing second or third tier things, which kind of defeats the whole purpose of it. Because if we can't, you know, if we're going to guess that it's not famous people, then what are they really gaining from it, right? Like, what are they actually, you know, what deal flow? All the stuff about being a public persona so they can get more, you know, to benefit their core business, it's not even really there, which is why it's kind of just like, you know, like the overflow of money in the space and people just being absurdly wealthy just trickles down to, a, you know, a writer here or there. What about Sequoia? I mean, Rulov has 92,000 Twitter followers. Hard to believe. Sequoia retweeted me. Their Sequoia corporate account retweeted me one time. They have 631,000 followers. Nothing happened. <laughs> it was like... Him and Andreessen are by far... <laughs> I think corporate accounts are hard just in general. Like people follow those like passively, right? right. Rather than... But them and Andreessen have by far the biggest uh, follower count. And I assume people are just following it for general 
information about deals and stuff like that, not for like actual engagement, right? People don't engage with a corporate. That's why you see like occasionally when Wendy's goes off the, you know, whatever, and like some of these brands start clapping back, it is super entertaining, but people don't follow right. corporate accounts for the actual information. I think one of the things that's interesting though, is the dichotomy that would exist from like building this persona online in such a way that is incongruous with your own personality or style, right? And I felt that a little bit where I was playing this Colbert-ish VC voice and then people would meet me and they would be like, I think some people would expect me to be in character or, right. you know, whatever, <laughs> or like be funnier than I was in right. person or something, right? Mm, I don't know difficult. if you guys have ever been around comedians, but like some of the funniest people I've ever met in my life, like you meet them and they're not actually like funny on a day-to-day, -day, like some are, but some are insufferable where they're always like trying to make jokes. It can go either way. Well, no, that. but I even have like some of the people I interact with that are like the funniest people I know are like have a very dark, they're like very quiet and they right. have like very like dark witty quips that are going right. on in their head and then right. they'll like say it very subtly but it doesn't come across right. like in the same way and i think that's interesting of if you're building this public persona around something that is inauthentic to who you are and then people meet you right and it's like wait hang on that's not what i thought i was getting yeah. right and so that's an interesting thing as well it's like to what end? Eventually, you have to meet these people in person. Right? Eric it, Lyman's it, just like, hey, I took your money. You need to get your jokes per minute up when we're hanging out. You know? Yeah, <laughs> exactly. He's like, this isn't, you know, this isn't what I signed up for, man. You're you're like over here trying to talk to me about like hack payback and efficiency metrics. And right. he's like, like, I need some memes out of you. Yeah, right. I thought this board meeting was going to be way more fucking like pithy. Instead, yeah, you're just right. asking me about like, that's you know, right. year end goals. Can we get to the part of the story that I found interesting? Because it, no. it, it no? Okay. Yeah. Go, no, go. go. Um, yeah. yeah, I know. I'm just kidding. <laughs> okay. Here's this part. Everyone involved in tech at a global scale has a political project. Most of them are open border guys. Uh, <laughs> they want to beat the immigration reform drum because they need to hire engineers. A lot of my clients are interested in tech policy and national security. China deterrence, missile defense, the government procurement process. I can help them sound like they're knowledgeable and in the weeds on this stuff, man. I, I hope he's not charging a ton for that. <laughs> Sometimes tweets about policy arguments can get pretty close to what you'd call an op-ed. So this is weird to me, this part of it, because it's trying to graft a political, no, like a business rationale onto political tweets. And I just don't agree that that's the case. I honestly think all these guys, you know, the all-in people, any of the other people we've mentioned so far that are tweeting about politics, not, you know, all the fucking day long, I think they do it because they really think their political opinions are interesting and they want to get it out there. Right. It's not even good for business necessarily. They just can't help themselves. Like, yeah. Honestly, what a prolific, interesting person, this figure, whoever this is, must be, <laughs> yeah. that they're like five hours a week, right? Five hours a week for 200 grand a year. They're waiting in 25 to 50 VCs inboxes to come up with <laughs> tweets. They have their own burner phone to do this, which is just hilarious. That like, that was a part of the article. It's like, I have my own CRM, my own burner phone. I'm like, what in the world? Why do you need your own? Like the chat apps work pretty well across different platforms, like and an Excel sheet where I don't think you need a personal CRM for this, but it feels like they just, this person must be amazingly intelligent to be able to just talk in someone else's voice, let alone one person, but 25 to 50 people, and then come up with funny jokes as well as like immigration policy threads and be able to craft all that back to like the voice that this individual wants to have, all while being a founder of another company that they're spending, you know, the vast majority of their time doing. I don't know. It felt like to me, there was like cobbled together a bunch of interesting truths here, probably. And they decided to just like, you know, maybe this is five different people that they turned it into the amalgamation of one or something. It just feels like they tried to jam too many things into one, like, here's what I'm doing, right? And make too many different points when any of the points could have been interesting on their own. It does feel like this needed to be a real person or like a named person. I don't know. I find it a little hard to believe. They have a process here at Insider where they do try to verify these things. And I'm sure it went through that process. I think what they're trying to get at and why the story was popular is that it does seem to be that there, like we've talked about, ulterior motives to being a Twitter personality and a presence. And whether you can do it yourself or need to hire someone to do it. I, I do think there's a sense that Twitter is like dying. 
Or like, I don't know. Do you feel like Twitter is like decaying? I think that keeps coming up in the conversation around Elon buying it. That like, it's not just that the market's gotten worse, but it feels like Twitter the experience. Or is that too? Or it's just always sort of bleak on there? I don't know. I mean, honestly, it feels like, it feels like people that have increased new levels of fame or new levels of notoriety or celebrity then look around at their like Twitter presence and they're like, what is going like all these people are attacking me. And it's like, well, you are like weighing in on global events across the world and you do have millions of followers. And so like your experience maybe has changed because of how your profile has been raised and how your profile has gone up, not anything inherent to like Twitter, the app. And so to some extent, Twitter gets all this criticism of the experience, right? From people whose experience has noticeably changed because they're far richer and far more famous and weighing in on issues that they didn't in the past. And so it's, it, that's what's always funny to me when Elon's like, oh, how many people, their replies are all bots when they post something. Right. And he's like, everyone only gets bot replies and crypto spam. Right. And I'm like, dude, like, you're the most followed person on the platform. <laughs> right. you know, it's like, not representative. Your experience is different than my experience right. on the platform. Right. And so I don't know if Twitter's actually dying. I mean, I do think that all these new form factors that are coming out are interesting and like should be explored and be that, you know, whatever, TikTok or Reels or YouTube. I mean, you're paying someone, and I've been wanting to say this. I mean, you're paying Redpoint is someone to create TikToks, right? I mean, can you talk about that? Yeah, well, well that's, you know, whatever. That's not his entirety of his job. But yeah, Rashad, a seer we hired from, he was at Looker. He That's was all I Luke. see, you know. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, he comes <laughs> I on. See him. He he's comes a producer. Up, I see him on my TikToks, you know. He's a producer for my podcast as well. And then he does a bunch of internal stuff with events and, and content with our portfolio companies and a bunch of different things. But yes, that is some, one, I guess to be very clear, that was what drew us to hiring him was that he was creative and good at content. And I guess this is an interesting thing that kind of dovetails back to the overall thing we're talking about is I found when we were trying to produce content or get our name out there more and more, inevitably, it always falls to the bottom of investors' priorities to do this stuff. Like it's always, hey, you have a list of 15 things and this is the 16th and you never get to it, right? right? It's like, unless you're willing to bump it up to the fourth or third or whatever thing, you're never going to get to it versus talking to the next founder or whatever. And so in talking to one of the thought process in bringing on Rashad was, hey, he's funny, interesting, creative, and he's going to be a kind of a Swiss army knife that can do a bunch of different stuff for us. But then two, having someone that wakes up every day kind of thinking about content in some way, shape or form, he's launching a podcast here in the next couple of weeks or like Hmm. a YouTube series thing. And just having someone that like is thinking about that every day. But all that's to say, like the more important thing was in trying to get my coworkers to produce content, it was never a priority. It's a priority at a strategic meeting and we're like, oh, this should be a priority. And so we talk about it, right? And then like one person or two people goes and executes on it and everyone else is like, oh, I forgot about that priority, right? And so that was one of the things for it, which I think ties back to why you would pay someone else that would make it a priority for them, right? Yeah. Has there ever been significant blowback? Do you think there are VCs who have lost out on deals because they were so committed to tweeting about their fierce commitment to open borders that, you know, there was some like potential startup founders that were like, yeah, fuck this guy. I don't want this guy on my board because he's going to. You know, it's a funny story. I mean, this is like related to your question, less heft than open borders. But we had a joke. Rashad made this video about VC six months ago versus VCs now. And the joke was how fickle VCs are in their advice. That was the joke. But one of the comments of six months ago were like, hey, you need to hire as many people as you can and let's let's scale our marketing department. And then it like cuts to VCs now. And it's like, do you really need a marketing department? (laughs) Right. Right. And Mm -hmm. the joke wasn't like about the role of marketing. The joke was like how fickle VCs were in their advice. But. I'll tell you, (laughs) there's a lot of humorless people on the internet. (laughs) And one CEO in particular got very fired up about that and was like, I would never work with a VC that is so flippant about the roles of layoffs and uh, all that. And 
Then it got set around internally, and then you know whatever it got. The, the original your, tweet your got enemies like, within Redpoint used it to knife you. You're like, how correct? Dare you? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so uh, this is my, I'm announcing my departure from Redpoint. No, but the original tweet got like 2,000 likes, and then this one person got 60 or whatever, trying sure. to clap back at us. But you know what? Like 60 likes and 15 replies saying I'm never going to work with this firm again, uh, or I'll never have them on my list. It does feel like a big deal right. in the grand scheme of things. And so to some extent, like I actually respect Founders Fund in a meaningful way for their ability to say, hey, we're not going to appeal to everyone and we're going to tell a lot of people to fuck off, but we're going to try to appeal deeply to some subset of this. And so we've had that experience here in the last couple of months, and it had to be a conversation internally about like, hey, are jokes worth people disliking us? Because right. that's sort of, even if you have a 90% approval rating and you reach 100,000 people, that means 10,000 people are going to dislike you, right? right? And right. that can seem like a lot when they're yelling at you online. Well, this is, see, this is where it gets to be crossover with journalists again, because I think it's the same calculation journalists have of like, all right, I can make this joke or I can make fun of Facebook in this particular way. And it could piss off some number of people Am I willing to accept that in order to get the other people that might be more inclined to follow me or like me or leak things to me? Like, let me see what that trade-off is. So it's all flattened through the same medium. People are so much meaner. Journalists have such thicker skin than VCs do. Like, you guys get roasted, like, all the time with people angry at you for doing your job, right? Like, you doing your job involves people getting mad at you more often than not, like, breaking a scoop. You know, Eric broke some scoops today, and I was like, fuck, man, come on, like, come on, really? Like, did you really right. have to do that, right, about one of our portfolio companies? And so you doing your job is, like, actually annoying people at times. And people can be very vitriolic to reporters about stuff, right, and all the right. fake news and, you know, whatever, all the animosity. Yeah, I don't feel too bad for reporters. First of all, we're out there. Like, I was going to say, also, you have to keep in mind that we make a lot of money. You know, yeah, we're, that's we're, the thing. That's we're quite wealthy. Yeah. And so it's like you're willing to accept some of the slings and arrows in order to get that seven, eight right. figure well, yearly income. And you all have yeah. verified check marks on Twitter and mm -hmm. you get to, you know, whatever, all those like Met Ball galas and stuff. I know. The, the most infuriating is definitely for all the VCs to be like the real elites are the reporters. You know, it's like not the people who make a bazillion dollars. It's the fucking reporters who are the real elites. It is a funny, though. I mean, not to say I feel badly for uh, reporters. It's more of contrast of like how sensitive VCs right, can right. be about stuff. It's insane. Right? And at the end of the day, we get paid very well uh, to do a pretty fun job. I do think it's it's a very San Francisco thing. Or, I mean, like Wall Street, finance. I mean, I feel like people, while they'll complain about getting attacked, I don't think they're as, like, surprised. I do think part of it is that VC works so well in that you can always add somebody else to a round. So there's just such an incentive in that business to be nice to everybody in a way that feels great. Like, I, yeah, it's nice to be in a business where people can be nice. And then it makes people shocked when people aren't. And they're like, why? It works so well when you're... I wonder how much, I mean, to one, like a lot of people in tech at large, right, were probably more introverted and not like, you know, didn't have the popularity sports thing through high school and college and all of that stuff, right? And so there's some like, hey, now I've made it. And so when people, now I'm cool, right? And I, by my childhood, people were mean and there were these uh, meathead bullies, but now I'm not that. And so when there's criticism coming, it's like, wait, hang on, I'm past that point, right? Like this is bringing back memories of my middle school <laughs> and I don't like that, right? And so I think part of it is, is maybe like, that. It's a and trauma part of response. It, yeah, yeah. It's like, hang on, hang on. Like, do not put me in that locker again. I told Tommy Green if he ever did that. And then the other one I think that's interesting is like, there is this inherent optimism. And now, I mean, it's kind of counterbalanced with some level of like broad-based nihilism that I think also exists. But the, like, the tenant of VC and technology is like optimism and sure. believing in the future and all that. And so when people start poking and prodding that, I think there's an inherent defensiveness that comes out. And also, it's a lot easier to sound a cynic than it is to sound an optimist, right? right. And so I think people just overcorrect on those things, and it comes off in a, I don't know, vitriolic kind of way. Did you have a concluding thought on this, Tom? And then I did want to talk about the market for 10 minutes. No, I, I think we should all, you know, 
keep fighting on Twitter. I think it's clearly doing good for all of our personal brands. I want to reiterate my offer to journalists. I don't have a lot of followers, but that's because, you know, I'm very concerned about my personal brand, but I can build up other people's. And I, I would like to just put my skills out there to someone. If you are a journalist, you don't think you're getting the engagement you think you should get. You want to get into fights with people. I can offer those tweets. Reach out to me. My DMs are open. Tom has the weirdest. I'm going to link to some of the Tom tweets that are like jokes on like streaming platforms. Tom wants to be or... the New Yorker. You know, <laughs> you don't need to appeal broadly to everyone, Tom. Yeah. You can have a very sophisticated palette that like that's, people That's what really... I like to say. You know, it's a small but extremely high influence audience of people. Well, I, I feel that's like right. Twitter. I think yeah. you make the type not to psychoanalyze you, but to do it. But I oh, feel please. like you make you make jokes that rely like I like them because they rely on knowing like your voice. And so if you know your voice and your sensibility, mm-hmm. it's like I oh, this is like clever. Yeah. But like nobody, you're. <laughs> that famous so nobody just, laughs nobody laughs you know what? My, my hope is that it burrows into your brain and then like a couple of hours later you're like oh yeah i guess that was kind of funny and then and then you move on with your day i keep making content for the unwashed masses but but tom the the real caviar taste right. of humor right so. he's yeah. not willing to you're, sell out like you back you to know? the broadcast cable model i mean you're kind of you're out there doing cbs sitcoms you know that's right that's our, right like, this popularity is, our podcast has a dead cat like definitely there we got a couple people who are like a dead cat like how dare you evoke that image like it's terrible for seo but um yeah yeah but it weeds out the people who, who are concerned about that all right let's go to the you markets. are a serious vc so naturally we're going to spend 90 percent of the time talking about twitter and 10 percent. but like i mean I yeah think, of course i actually don't remember which of these companies you'd invested in earlier but you know i just wrote about like a hundred million dollar Series A, 175 million Series A, a 500 million Series C all happening recently. And just this idea that like, yep. I don't know, Series A, B, C, seed, people are willing to go aggressive. The growth stage funds are like diving in, whereas growth is still super hard. You're more of a growth investor. I mean, yeah, I don't know. More do of you a growth agree, person. Do you agree yeah. with that thesis or like, yeah, have you, you been know, tempted to I, go early? So, yeah. Funny enough, I guess timing-wise, we're recording this on, what, a Friday. And last night, I got together with a bunch of our limited partners. And so I had to pull together a bunch of data and, you know, kind of collect my thoughts on stuff, right? Just to sound intelligent. And I don't know if that worked, but I did collect thoughts. (laughs) And it's interesting, right? I will say that what we've seen at the Series B, Series C stage is like definitely a pullback in terms of valuations. So this was kind of a proprietary analysis that we had internally, and I'm going to give you the broad strokes of it. But the deals that we care about, right, which is a very at the moment in time and a very qualitative assessment, but we've been doing it for six years or whatever, right? And we saw a step up between 2020 and 2021 of it went from let me do the math on it i guess it went from 255 million to just under 600 million for series b's for the average price of deals you care about correct the median but yeah wow. and so it was like a 2x step up and the the revenue multiple of that went from 32 times to 153 times <laughs> right uh right and so and the so, revenue multiple so, increased by much more than the valuation Correct. And so what was happening was at the scale of these companies went from 5 million down to 2 million. And so people were both going earlier in these companies and paying more, right? right? And so obviously that's how the multiple goes up in such a meaningful way. Now, since in 2022, we've seen it fall. So that 595 is down to 390-ish and the multiples down from 153 to 110. So it's fallen off but not at the level before all this was going on, right? If you go back to 2019 uh, or even 2020, we're talking like 25 to 35 times, right? There's like sort of the, and you can justify that because these companies are growing two to three X. And so, hey, like when you compare that to the public market, how does that make sense? Well, you know, the public market companies are growing 60%, right? Versus these companies are growing 200%. Right. And so you could justify a trailing number being higher as a multiple. So we've seen it correct, there is this like stickiness in some of these prices. And then there's all this dry powder sitting on the sidelines, right? And so I don't know how it's going to flow through. And there's these two things that are kind of at odds or tension with one another right now, where one is 
valuations have gotten hammered in the public markets, right? Two is we're starting to see the macro flow through of, you know, softening in sales cycles and pipeline and all that in the public markets. And I have some data that I can talk to on that. So we're starting to see all that stuff happening. Right. Then the tension on the other side is all this fucking money, right? And you have six, eight, $10 billion funds sitting there. And so I'm not really sure how those two things are going to play out and how long it's going to take to play out. And so I think to the things that you reported on today, Eric, what I think is, I don't want to speak about any of the portfolio companies that I wish you hadn't preempted <laughs> funding news on. But in general, I think what we're seeing is some of these groups that previously were willing to invest $200 million at a $2 billion valuation, right? right. Now they're saying, hey, you know what? Let's go put in $20 million at a $200 million valuation and let's do it in 10 companies, right? right? And so you're seeing all these people say, hey, fuck it. We don't really care if it's 150 or 200 or 250 or 300, much better than that 2 billion we were paying right. before. And so while it's crazy on a multiple basis, right? Because it might be, you know, infinity time, they might not have revenue, at least the low absolute valuation gives you upside that if this grows into a $2 billion company, the big like question that I've had that is hard to answer, but do you think Series A rounds were actually like were mispriced and that just the likelihood of getting from Series A to Series C was so high that people were giving too much of a discount at Series A? I mean, John Curtius, who's leaving Tiger, I mean, you could almost argue his new fund is on that premise. It's like very like going to be Series A to Series B, Series C focused. I think like the idea that like, preference is actually a really valuable thing. And like, you don't necessarily lose your money in like an early stage investment. So there's more downside protection than is, I don't know. Do you think there is a chance that series A prices were too low relative to series C and D? If you look at the run up that existed from like, let's go back to 2012 to today, right? Like I, I think, and I'm not going to get these numbers exactly right, but like series B's went up by 4x and series C's went up by 6x and series A's went up by 2x, right? And so like the absolute, the valuation increase of these things were not linear between the two, right? They didn't expand at a comparable rate. Now, why was that the case? Well, series A's, I think founders probably had a little bit more price discipline and uh, desire to pick board members and, you know, not to price optimize. The myth of a benchmark insisting that you keep to price discipline held harder than the late stage. Yeah. Ones. And I think there's more truth to it at the earlier stage than as you get to the later stages of these valuations. And so you've seen the correction. I think when we were sort of pouring through our data, you know, that B's and C's are down in some cases, 50, 60, 70 percent, right, in different situations. And I think it might take a while for all that to actually flow through and to see it in a broad based way versus the series A's are down 20, 30 Right? right. And they didn't go up the same way that the B's and C's did. So they're not going down the same way. And so I guess the question is like, was it mispriced? Maybe. Right. I think it requires a lot more work to invest in a Series A company. It's not nearly the dollars aren't as scalable because, hey, you know, it takes about as much time to do a $30 million check as it does to do a right. $5 million check in a lot of cases. And then two, you actually need to work with these companies in a way of like helping them hire and recruit and all that. I know that. Well, that's been the real challenge that the Series A investors have to keep working. And then Tiger comes in and is like, here's a bunch of money, but we're not going to do anything. Good luck. And so it's then still the poor Series A investor that has to like keep the company together. That's the smartest thing a lot of these hedge funds are doing now is they're looking at like the companies and saying not just the validation of do they have a good investor that's already there, but also do they have a good board member who's going to be a steward for the capital and make sure they don't drive it off the cliff. Right. right. And so they're kind of looking at it being like, well, you know, that person's legit. And so... I'll just trust them. Like, they'll be my proxy for all decisions, right? And then they get to be a little price insensitive about, is it 100 post or 200 post, right? Which seems like a really meaningful amount. But if you're a hedge fund who's crossing over into privates and you're ultimately trying to move three, four billion dollars, five billion dollars in the next three or four years, like, you don't really care. It's either going to work or it's not. Last question on this. I think there's one view that like, Everybody was slow in the first, like, what, eight months of the year, nine months of the year. 
And then they're like, finally really come back from vacation. And like you said, they have all this dry powder and they're like, fuck it. We need to do deals. That's what people pay me for. And so they're doing them, but it's still sort of irrational because it's going to be more brutal ahead than behind. Or this is sort of the beginning of a comeback story in startup investing. I mean, do you have a view either way of whether this is sort of like sort of weird incentives based on people's jobs or if it's the actual reflection that the market is going to start to turn around? Yeah, I mean, I guess I'll take a cop out and say, hey, I think it's some of both. I will say there are perverse incentives that at a, at a high level, I believe in the trends that are going on and blah, blah, blah. Let me give you all my like LP speak of like, hey, <laughs> Tech's these still tectonic, good. Right. <laughs> yeah, these tectonic shifts that are happening are inevitable and it's going to create lots of equity value and all that, right? Blah, blah, blah. Yeah. I think one thing we're seeing is there's definitely supply. I think it's not a demand problem that exists. Like I think there's VCs still willing to be very irrational in their investing. And I think there's a lot of perverse incentives that exist there where people are like, hey, you know, my job's not to time the markets. Right. I'm using air quotes, right? But like <laughs> my job is to give Adam Newman like $300 million. <laughs> yeah, yeah. My job is not to assess, you know, valuation. My job is to assess, you know, trends and entrepreneurs, right? And so right. I'm not going to get too hung up on the price of all this. And so I think there's a lot of people that have that philosophy. Right now, I think what you're seeing is there's a supply problem that... So many companies raised so much money over the course of the last two years that the great companies out there are like, hey, why would I go out there now and get jerked around potentially on valuation or have to take a down round or whatever? Why would I go out and do that when I have capital for the next six years sitting on my balance sheet? And so I think the reason we're seeing, I don't know how much VCs have actually found religion on like, hey, the public markets are impacting the, the multiples that we should be willing to pay and therefore what these outcomes can be versus they're just not getting in the, the right. swings at the plate that they got over the course of the last. And so I think it's going to take a bunch of the businesses that actually need capital to go back out and start fundraising. And they can't just sit on the sidelines to really figure out which one of those two things is going to play out. And to be honest, it's going to be both, right? There's going to be VCs that have found total religion and understand exactly where multiples are trading and going to be very disciplined about this stuff. And there's going to be VCs that say, hey, you know, our jobs, to we raised $5 billion. And so we're going to invest $5 billion. How many deals have you done personally this year? As a fund, we've done one <laughs> this entire year. What? We've done Oh, yeah. my God. Wow. Redpoint early stage. Sorry, sorry. That's the growth team. Redpoint early stage. I, I don't know. They've done more. But we've done one this entire year. It was done in January. And we've done, that's the only one we've done Is actually that in the last or what was 12 that? months. Yeah, Acuity MD. It was technically a series. It was a big series. Well, so your I, life I, is just tweeting. Going back to our, no wonder you're like, a, you're a podcast 100%. Host. Well, that, <laughs> I, I, come on. That's not, that's not fair. I podcast and tweet. So <laughs> right. I, uh, yeah. Do your LPs no. send you Elon-like texts? Like, what have you done this week? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I get that. I get that sometimes. I, uh, no, they wish I committed more of their money just unscrupulously to the Twitter round. Just sort of sent money over. That, that's <laughs> Oh true. my God. Yeah. Right. Get me in on that, baby. Yeah. 44 so, billion or bust. Yeah. So, no, but it's interesting, right? I mean, it, it is the last 12 months, I think, uh, as a fund, we're probably at the point that we've only done, that's the only deal we've done even in the last 12 months, let alone this calendar year, right? Now, we're still looking at a bunch of stuff and we're still chasing things around, but it's really that supply problem. And then a little bit of this market dislocation pricing thing that we're, I don't know, we're, we've been a little more attuned to, or at least a little more focused on than others have. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Well, we ended in, a, in quite a heightened place, I feel like, in this conversation after the beginning. Yeah, I do think we can the real you... We back to The real you is is the, the one with the financials. I am sorry to say. Yeah, well, I mean, and that's why it's so incongruous that I have all these writers <laughs> writing all this stuff for me. And then and then I like go down these rabbit hole of like multiples and SaaS and financials and all that. And they're like, they're like what the fuck? Like, can you make a joke? <laughs> right. Well, but your ability to, you know, have facility with these financials makes the monies so that you can employ the writers that keep your Twitter account. Correct. Yeah. You know, it's that all part of a circular virtuous circle. Flywheel that yeah. exists. It's really capitalism in its purest form right there. So Right. Yeah. Just trickle it down. Specialization. To yeah. Yeah. It, but it all works together. Well, I'm glad we ended in this place, Logan. And we should plug your podcast 
Yeah. So this is much more in-depth into all this stuff. It's nice to be a guest rather than a host. So I appreciate you guys, yeah. you guys driving this. It allows me. You're like, I have thoughts too, you know, I have expertise. Yeah, yeah, so I don't exactly. just have to ask other people what they think. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I have to, uh, on my podcast, I've asked that uh, non sequiturs that just like double back to my own opinion. It's like much more, uh-huh. you know, versus right. you guys asking. It sounds to me like right. you're projecting here, Logan. Is there something that you want to be talking about? <laughs> yeah. There's exactly. a lot of that on the show. Yeah. So I do. I have cartoon avatars who do it once a week. And yeah, it, the format changes. We have people on. It's not dissimilar to you guys in some ways. You guys brought down Web3 basically, right? I mean, you destroyed, Correct. you said there's nothing there. And yeah. Correct. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Which is another funny thing because we have people on our team at Redpoint that invest in Web3. <laughs> and people are like, are, wait, isn't that guy like the negative Web3 guy? Doesn't that, doesn't he work with you? Oh, right. <laughs> see, but this gets back to like the idea between like content and, and, and actual business. You're like, you have to understand anti Web3 stuff does really well right now. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You got to play that like, market. Who gives a fuck? That's, <laughs> that's right. I actually just, when people, whenever people say, aren't you the Web3 guy, I just show the spikes in listenership whenever. And I'm like, yes. I, yeah. No, I'm the market guy. That's what I am. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Are you guys going to have Sam Lesson back on to redeem himself? Is that I, a... You know, I... Lesson you guys wants barely to do it. published it, right? Like, it was yeah. it was hard to listen to. I mean, yeah, I like I know, Sam. I, know. I like Sam. I like his tweets. But he came off terribly. And he also can just be so petty, like, on some of the... Uh, oh, my I, God. Listen, he wanted to do it. Go Zach ahead. was like, hey, this is terrible. I, You know, I really, I was embarrassed because like I, you know, ostensibly I'm supposed to be the moderator of that. And I, I was just sort of sitting back like arms crossed laughing the whole time. And I kind of forgot what my role in, in doing something like that was. You see, I'm just kept interrupting. Like he, like, I mean, Zach yeah. is very good. Is he like a, what's his status with the show? Is he a co-host or is he just sort of a... He won't be called a co-host. The guy does a million things. It's actually pretty impressive how busy he is. And so trying to pin him down regularly is a pain in the ass. But he, uh, we know I all think about that. he comes on regularly at this point and I can get him uh, probably every other episode. So I, it's something quasi co-host. Yeah. We, we have a co-host who drops off in the middle of episodes to take calls about the Justice Department. So... We can empathize. Everyone can relate, relate. right? Here we are. We're on that content grind and other people are like trying to do their job. Everyone's like, (laughs) now you hear why I have the time to do this. It's like, hang on. So you've done one deal in the last year. I'm like, yeah, 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 that's right. (laughs) That's uh, and now you know why I'm the one with the schedule available for Zach and not the other way around. All right. Well, anyway, uh, I look forward to to Sam Lesson Zach part two. It's like the Gore Vidal. Norman Mailer fight of our time. So no, honestly, I I think the best analogy is the first Trump Biden debate, uh, where I was <laughs> I was the moderator to sort of who was that? Was that Chris Wallace? Who was it that got steamrolled? That was I me. Uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I think so. I I remember more the Hillary, uh, the more Hillary Biden debates. They like I'm not the puppet, you're the puppet. That's basically where that <laughs> yeah. one ended up. But I'll listen either way. Cool. Thanks, guys. This was fun. All right. Thanks a bunch. Thanks, Logan. Goodbye. Silicon Valley. Goodbye. 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 Goodbye.